Good morning. Our first scripture reading this morning uh, from the Old Testament is Psalm 110, which is found on page 442 of your pew Bible. Again, that's Psalm 110. And these words likely are very familiar. This is um, one of the most, if not the most, quoted passage from the Old Testament, quoted in the New. Listen here to God's word. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. In holy array, from the womb of the dawn, your youth are to you as the dew. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Amen. Our second Old Testament passage uh, this morning comes from the book of Isaiah. And actually, we'll see in a minute that they have um, some parallels or some overlap. And this is Isaiah's commissioning, or his ordination, as it were, uh, when the Lord sends him out as a prophet. So it's Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, and that's found on page 490 of the uh, Bible in the pew. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out, while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity has been taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Amen. And then um, our, our third text, which is uh, going to be the text of our primary focus this morning, is from the book of Romans. It's chapter 5, verses 1 through 8. Again, that's found on page 121 of your, your pew Bible. <coughs> Listen here. To God's word. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. 
and we exult in the hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who was given to us. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man, someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Amen. Please take a moment and bow and silently meditate on the scripture. Heavenly Father, as we uh, have gathered here to worship your name, we pray that we would continue to worship you uh, with the reading of your word. And Lord, we pray that your spirit would, would speak through your word that we might grow in our understanding of who you are our dependence upon you, and our obedience to you wherever you might lead. And Lord, as we've opened your word, may we in it find wonderful and beautiful things. And it is in the name of your Son we pray. Amen. According to the internet, and I realize that's in itself a dangerous statement, I mean, the internet's always right, right? But according to the internet, by the first week of February, 80%, again, that's 80% of New Year's resolutions have fallen by the wayside. I think in some ways that's a good thing. I didn't resolve to do this, but, but if my resolution had been to go to the gym two times a day, every day for, for, for the whole year, that's an unrealistic expectation. That doesn't line up with reality. And so, naturally, I don't do it. Right? So, so here we are at the, at the end of January, and we're in this position where all of those unrealistic, pie-in-the-sky, 2019's-going-to-be-great resolutions have usually all fallen by the wayside. And I think it's a helpful time to think, well, what's 2019 going to be like? Is it going to be a good year? Is it going to be a bad year? Whether you look you know, at social media, whether you look at, at news, radio, television, whatever the case may be, you'll see a, a mixed bag. Some say it's going to be a great year. Some say it's going to be a bad year. Probably, you know, the reality is, in some sense, we can't tell. But I'm going to go out on a limb. I'm going to say that 2019 is going to be a, a good year. Actually, I'm going to say it's going to be a great year. Let's hope. And I, and I say that um, not so much because of who I am or what, what I have, uh, but it's because of who I know. That is to say that I belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and as you're, you're sitting here looking at me, likely you can say, well... You know, the first month of 2019 wasn't so great, so 
I don't really have any expectation that the rest is going to be good. Well, we have cause, even in distress, to think that 2019 will be a good year. And Lord willing, we'll look at the how and the why we can expect that to be the case. To do so, I need to start at the beginning. And I don't mean to start at the beginning in terms of like going to Genesis, looking at how creation was established. That's a good thing to do. But, but what I mean is to start at the, the beginning of really tragedy. Think about in life when bad things happen, whether it's the loss of a parent, family member, child, uh, loss of a job, um, you know, social standing. Maybe it's a disaster on a national scale. What, you know, turmoil seems to, to be all around. What should we do when turmoil comes? And for that, we need to remember the words of Isaiah. We just read them, uh, but for clarity, I'm going to repeat them. And again, this is at his commissioning. This is when he is sent out to be a prophet of the Lord. Just listen, especially to the context. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Now to begin, did you hear the context? Did you hear what started this all? Isaiah has this vision in the year of King Uzziah's death. Now, I have to con confess... You know, my, my memory of the, the kings of Judah just isn't as sharp as it probably should be. Um, but if you remember, the king Uzziah was a king in Judah, and he was described as a good king. In fact, he was a good king in essentially all ways, just one. He didn't remove the high places that Solomon set up. If you remember last week, we talked about Solomon and how his life went and one of the things that Solomon did is he set up idols. Well, here they come back. King Uzziah was a good king. He just didn't tear down the idols. But here's the critical thing. King Uzziah reigned for 52 years. Only Manasseh reigned for a longer period of time. So what does that mean for Isaiah? In the year of King Uzziah's death, that was the end of a 52-year reign. More than likely, nobody had any memory of the king before Uzziah. All the Israelites would have known is 52 years of a king that is trying to lead them to follow the Lord. Likely, people would have been freaking out. I mean, even simple things like, how do we even go about making a new king? You know, the, the pageantry in the show. But not only that, they would have been concerned because a new king means new governmental policies, new, new economic policies. What if this king isn't a good king? 
The world, right after Uzziah dies in Israel, is in chaos. And it's into that context that that Isaiah has this vision, right? It's into this context that Isaiah sees, though his earthly king has died, his heavenly king is seated on the throne with angels flying around saying, holy, 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 and the whole of the heavens shaking because of the glory of the Lord. In that time of intense turmoil, Isaiah is reminded that the Lord is on his throne ruling over all. Isaiah is reminded that no matter what's going on, the Lord is there. And to be clear, it's not as though there's going to be an election, right? The Lord is on his throne forever. We can even go a little further. We can, we can think about, in, in the times of distress, how the Lord administers that rule, right? If you remember Psalm 110, which we just read, and you have in Psalm 110, um, the, the Lord saying to David, we, we presume, the Lord said to my Lord, well, what's going on? And why is that so quoted in the New Testament? Well, it's quoted because we understand that this is the Father speaking to the Son. Here, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool beneath your feet. This is describing Jesus. You see, we we recognize that, that Jesus came as the eternal Son of God, that He lived, died, and rose again for us, and that as He has ascended into heaven, He's seated at the right hand of the Father until His... Enemies are made a footstool under his feet. And to be clear, this doesn't mean that he's kicked back with his feet up lounging. To say that he's at his father's right hand means that he's acting. It's the source of power and authority. And that is what the Lord Jesus is carrying out. The rule and reign of the Heavenly Father. And he's doing it even now. And he's doing it perfectly. Beyond that, we see at the end of Psalm 110 that the Lord says, I have sworn forever that you shall be a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. We see that Jesus is not just seated at the right hand of the Father continuing to carry out the plans of God. He's also interceding on our behalf to God. Speaking uh, uh, on on our behalf, speaking uh, words of peace. So to summarize quickly, when we're faced with tragedy or difficulty, we need to take comfort, one, in God's eternal and sovereign rule. And we need to take further comfort knowing that the Lord Jesus is perfectly carrying out the will of His Heavenly Father. And even as I say that, I recognize that some of you might be hurting this morning, whether physically, emotionally, financially, whatever the case may be. And you might be tempted, you might be restraining yourself with difficulty from saying, big deal. This This isn't helping me. Some of you might even, you know, be frustrated in the midst of the turmoil, wondering where your help shall come from. 
And it's in this light that I think we need to consider uh, for a moment what Paul writes to the Romans. He says, again, this is uh, chapter 5, the first uh, couple of verses. He says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exalt in hope of the glory of God. This is basically as much as I've already said. When we believe in the Lord Jesus, we've been justified by faith, and we have peace with God. And this peace is administered through Jesus. And it even means that if I continue to sin, I have an advocate with the Father. It's the Lord Jesus at His right hand. And that is cause for exaltation. That's cause to worship the Lord. But it's important to note that Paul doesn't end there. He continues and he says in verses 3 through 5 And not only this, but we exalt in our tribulation, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope. And hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Paul says that he exalts in his tribulation. Now, to be clear, that's not a buzzword for some interpretation of the book of Revelation. This just means that when things go kerflui, the technical term, when things go kerflui, when things don't go the way that you anticipate them, um, that we are still to exalt the Lord. We're to worship the Lord even in the midst of our distress. And my first reaction probably not my best reaction, but my first reaction is to say, Paul, are you out of your mind? Don't you know that it's, it's near impossible to, to exalt in the glory of God when you're suffering? When, when your life is in shambles? Don't you know that having an easier life is better? Right? But Paul gives us a response in the remaining verses. He says that tribulations bring about perseverance. And at this time, I'm reminded of Job's perseverance, right? As the Lord took Job's family, his possessions, his health, his friends continued to say, Job, all you have to do is repent. Clearly, you've sinned. You just need to repent, and and the suffering will end. Job maintained that he hadn't sinned. And in the case of his present suffering, he was right. In the midst of his suffering, he continued to maintain his faith in the Lord, He trusted in the goodness of God. He didn't fully understand why he was suffering. But he persevered in faith. So over time, his perseverance grew. And from that perseverance comes proven character. And this is kind of just the logical progression. Um, As an illustration, I would say, think about a submarine. Right? It's, it's usually built to precise specifications, and it's, the idea is that it's able to withstand pressures as it de- dives beneath the water. When it's in dry dock, when it's being built, um, it's subjected to you know, forces of gravity and, and, and construction. It's not really proven until it goes in the water. 
right? A submarine, we, we think that it'll float. We think that it'll sink, but only the, sink the right amount. We think that it will be able to withstand the pressure that is subjected to it, but we don't know until what? It actually faces the pressure. It dives beneath the water and then comes back up. To put it in mathematical terms, we would say that perseverance over time equals proven character, right? In the same way that work over time would be power, right? We, we, we understand that, that as time goes on, our perseverance proves not only to those around us, but also to ourselves, the character that we are made of, right? And then Paul continues the line of logic by saying that this proven character over time brings hope. Well, what, what then does that mean? That hope is, is when we, over time, even in the midst of distress, cling to the Lord. And as we say to the Lord, I don't understand fully why I'm suffering in this way, but I'm going to hope in you and in the promises that you have made to me, our proven character comes to fruition. Paul kind of describes kind of sort of what this would look like in chapter 8, just a few chapters later. And I'm actually going to, to read some of it, uh, an extended section of chapter 8, um, largely because I can't improve upon it in any way. And Paul goes to great pains to show what he's after. And I'm starting in verse 30. Uh, sorry, not starting in verse 30, verses right ahead of that. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Now skipping to 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? Who shall spare, er, sorry, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather he who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who then will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So what do we see? We see here the subject of this hope. The hope is that God has promised to work all things together for our good. All things? Yes, all things. Each and everything? Yes, each and everything. Well, how? what's the proof of that? The proof is the Lord Jesus. What does it say? That Christ died for us. 
and that, that distress and persecution and ter- uh, turmoil cannot remove us from the love of God. So what are we to do? How are we to think about this? When distress and turmoil come upon us, when we're in the midst of a, a Job-like moment, whatever, whether it's big or small or anywhere in between, even if we don't fully understand why we're suffering, we need to cling to the Lord knowing and trusting that He's going to use it for our good. Because if He doesn't, then He's wasting the blood of His Son. Let me just unpack that for a minute. The Lord has promised to work for our good. And the justification for that is that Christ has died for us. So because Christ has died for us, the Lord is working for our good. If the Lord's not working for our good or, or not using all things together to work for our good, then it's because either the blood of Christ wasn't effective or it's because the Lord is wasting it. And I think we all understand and recognize that the Father does not waste the blood of His Son. It is far too precious. And so when we look to Jesus, we understand that the Lord will use all of our lives, the good and the bad, for our good. Now, as we think about this, as we think about our life that uh, is going to have both good and bad in it, as we think about the difficult situations in life or the difficult situations of our past, we might say, what happens when we, we cave? What happens when, when the difficult time comes and we run the other way? What happens when our faith falters? Is there any hope for us? Well, I say, yes, there is. And I would say, consider Peter. Right? Does everybody remember the conversation that, that Jesus had with Peter right before the Garden of Gethsemane? I get this, this picture in my mind of, of the Lord saying, Peter, and Peter saying, yes, Lord. And he says, Satan has sought permission to sift you like wheat. And I get the impression that Peter would have said, and you told him no, right? <laughs> what, is Peter, or what does the Lord say? I'll pray for you. Oh, what happens? On the first night that Peter is away from the Lord, I mean, the Lord's still there. He's being arrested and going through the, the, the mockery of a trial before heading to the cross. And Peter's just outside. They're, they're separated by just yards. But that separation was enough that Peter, felt, feeling the, the, the pressure from the world around him, caved. Do you know this man? Aren't you the one with him? And he denied the Lord, not once, not twice, three times in a night. He certainly didn't seem to have any perseverance or proven character. How could he have any hope? Well, he has hope in the Lord because, you know, after the Lord's resurrection, what does the Lord say? Actually, even before this happens, the the Lord says to Peter, Peter, when this happens, strengthen your brothers. And then later, after the resurrection, what does he do? He restores him three times. He says, "Feed feed the sheep. Take care of your brothers. Do the work that I called you to. In essence, restoring him to his right standing. 
Peter is faced with the temptation to follow the Lord in difficult circumstances or to run. He ran. Likely, if we look at our lives, we see a mixture of standing strong and running. We need to recognize that, that insofar as we're running from difficulty, we might, there's no we might, we will be restored to fullness in our relationship with the Lord. We need to repent. We need to stop running and stand strong. We need to stop running and we need to persevere through difficulty. How do we do that? We do that by remembering that the Lord continues to work for our good and that He is so committed to working for our good that He sent His Son to enter into our world to suffer alongside of us, to suffer for us, and that in His life, His death, and resurrection, all things work together for our good. This then doesn't mean that suffering is easy. It doesn't mean that turmoil and and distress are pleasant. It does mean that when we cling to the Lord, we will be delivered through them. And we will experience exceeding joy for doing so. So as 2019 is upon us, I mean, it's, it's indeed, it's already here. And it's likely to bring both great joy and great sorrow As long as the Lord continues to reign in heaven, we will be secure. And because we are secure in His arms, I confidently proclaim that 2019 will be a great year. Amen.